Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I have not washed in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. This matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself to the ho- in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. And he, that is, Elisha, said to him, Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as Tim said last night, late evening, as I was in a comfortable tryptophan-induced state of drowsiness, 
I got word that Pastor Luke had come down with the flu. And so as a consequence of that, we're going to be taking a brief uh, detour in our sermon series on the book of 1 John through 2 Kings. I'm not sure exactly how it ties in yet, but we'll, we'll figure it out along the way. So before we start, uh, please pray with me. Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity to worship together this morning. I ask that your favor and your healing would be on those, all those who have uh, fallen sick uh, with the flu and any other diseases that may be going around. And I ask that as we study your word this morning, that your spirit would illumine its meaning to us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was reading this passage, it reminded me of a trend in recent years in film and cinema of depicting dramas in more gritty and realistic ways. And I think you see this in, in films and dramas in which the protagonists are not entirely good and where the antagonists are not completely without virtue or some sense of morality. They're more nuanced, you might say, than the white hat good guys versus the black hat bad guys, as you might have seen in, in older um, works. And in many senses, that's true. It's true that no one is completely good, regardless of how heroic any of their individual actions may be. And it's true that no one is completely without a sense of morality, regardless of how evil or villainous their actions may be. And this passage then reads like, a plotline of such a film in which we have Naaman as the antagonist, but he's not depicted as completely evil. He has some virtue as well. But unlike these film and cinema, this story is not in the Bible simply to entertain us. Its purpose is to show God's relationship to his people and to his creation. And so we're going to examine it from that perspective. So this morning I want to look at Naaman who he is, his background, and his character. I want to look at Naaman's attempt to bargain with God, and I want to look at Naaman getting more than he bargained for from God. Naaman the man, Naaman's attempt to bargain with God, and Naaman getting more than he bargained for. So first of all, Naaman the man, who is Naaman? How does this passage depict him? Well, we see that it depicts him in both a mix of positive and negative ways. On the negative side, we see that he is a violent enemy of Israel. He's the commander of the army of Syria. And at this time, Syria was the dominant military power in the region. And he's the man in charge of that military, the one that would be used to violently uh, seize control and power and advantage for Syria in the region. We see also in the early part of the passage that um, on one of their raids, they've kidnapped an Israelite girl, and she's been made a slave in Naaman's own house. And finally, we see that Naaman, obviously as a Syrian, is also a Gentile, as, um, as, would have been, as they would have understood it. The Israelites were the people of God, and the Gentiles were everyone else. So in this sense, Naaman's being a Gentile is also a negative characteristic. But on the other hand, we see that he is also depicted with some positive characteristics. It says that he is a mighty man of valor, which is a pretty astonishing thing for 
a book written by an Israelite, an enemy of Syria, to say about Naaman. We've seen in other parts of the you may have read about other parts of the Bible about David's mighty men, um, a passage that describes positively men in David's army who were faithful and great warriors. And these same terminology is applied to Naaman. It's also true that Naaman was a highly successful man. He was commander of the Syrian army, the most powerful army at this point in time in this region. The trajectory of Naaman's life is probably one that we would admire. He had earned his position by being a man of valor. Finally, we also see that Naaman is a leper, and that's perhaps the motivating characteristic for this story. Leprosy is not something that's very common today, but at that point in time, it was an incurable disease and one that carried a lot of stigma and um, negative uh, connotations. As an Israelite, if you had leprosy, you were restricted from many of the religious practices that would have been uh, mandated. You were not allowed in the temple and so forth, and you were required to isolate yourself from your family and others in your community. There was the stigma of divine punishment that was associated with leprosy, and it was just an ugly, visible disease. So in some sense, the fact that Naaman was able to maintain his position as the commander of the army, despite having this very visible and ugly disease, probably speaks even more to his competence and ability as, as a military commander. So what are we to conclude about Naaman? Are we to think that he is, you know, a fundamentally decent guy who just happened to be born a Syrian and had he been somewhere else, he would have turned out differently? Or was he completely bought into the Syrian ethos that was uh, anti-Israel and anti-God? Well, when it comes down to it, we don't know the answer to that question. The passage doesn't tell us. And... But we can know that um, if it were important to the message of this story, the passage would have told us. You may wonder, however, why Naaman, a Syrian general, would be seeking help from the Israelite God. And we can know the answer to that. Because Naaman, as a pagan, would have had a pagan view of gods. He would have seen... He would have thought that there were many gods, each of whom had control over a specific individual sphere of life. So if you were a farmer, you would seek the favor of the god of farming to have a good uh, harvest. Or if you were a sailor, you would seek the favor of the god of the sea to have a safe journey. And so for Naaman, it's entirely possible that the Israelite god is the god of dermatology that can help him with his uh, leprosy, entirely consistent with his worldview. And so it, it makes sense that he would then uh, be willing to come to Israel to seek help for this particular situation. Now, at this point in the story, the action starts to heat up. Naaman travels to the house of the prophet Elisha, but Elisha doesn't even answer the door. He just sends his servant to tell Naaman to wash seven times in the Jordan River, which at this point um, in time is likely not much more than a muddy trickle of water. And Naaman is enraged and about to storm off and possibly even pillage and burn his way back home to Syria. But his servants convince him to try what Elisha suggested. 
And he does, and he's immediately healed of his leprosy. But in this action, we see Naaman's attempt to bargain with God. You see, Naaman's approach to God's would have been typical of any pagan uh, religion. In order to gain the favor of a god, he would need to bring some sort of offering or some kind of tribute or perform some great act of devotion to demonstrate his fealty or his loyalty to this god. In other words, Naaman viewed all gods as they were portrayed in other pagan religions as fundamentally the same as people, but just unusually powerful or wealthy or influential. And so his interaction with them would have been simply, uh, essentially a financial transaction. I bring something to you, you show me favor, and I get what I want. And so this explains Elisha's shocking response to Naaman. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard for us to envision sort of a modern version of this. Perhaps the closest we could get to it is if... Uh, you could imagine someone living in Kazakhstan, bordering Russia, and someday, and one day Vladimir Putin rolls up to his house with a column of tanks and a giant pile of money and demands that he do something that's essentially impossible. The reward, on the one hand, would be lots of money and the, the consequences for failing to do it, um, you, we can imagine, would be severe. And yet, Elisha, as a prophet of God, refuses to play into Naaman's expectations of what this interaction with God is going to look like. We see it first when he sends his servant down to speak to Naaman. Elisha doesn't even grace Naaman, this great military commander, with his own presence personally. He simply sends a servant down to speak to him. He ignores the big military display of Naaman's chariots and horses, and he refuses any kind of monetary payment or reward for curing Naaman's leprosy. This also explains why Naaman was enraged, because this is an affront to Naaman. He is expecting that all of his wealth and power and success is going to warrant and merit him a certain kind of treatment. And this makes him wonder, why am I not good enough? What isn't good, not good enough about what I'm doing here? But Elisha's response is intended to show that God is not interested in what Naaman can offer him or bring him. This is intended to humble Naaman, in fact. Now, at this point, you may be stepping back and saying, well, this is classic uh, pagan interaction with gods. I mean, I can see why Naaman would think that, but we here we are 2,000 and, you know, 500 years later, and, and, and we understand things differently now. Well, I would suggest to you that we are often what I might call modern pagans in our approach to God today. Modern paganism may come in different kinds of flavors. For example, if you're not particularly religious, you may say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, though, because I for example, I volunteer as a tutor for underprivileged students. Or I orient my lifestyle to be very environmentally conscious. Or I make time in my work schedule for my children. I'm a good parent. Or if you're a Christian, it might take a slightly different flavor. You might say, well, I tithe consistently and regularly. And we're all the way through to the end of November, and I've yet to miss 
any day in my Bible reading plan for the year. Or, as is perhaps common in our tradition, I have a lot of theological knowledge. I've spent time studying the Bible and books about the Bible, and I know the Westminster Confession forwards and backwards. You see, what's common among these two flavors, whether religious or Christian, modern paganism, is that they're both all about earning favor with God. See, if we take this approach, we have simply taken Naaman's ancient view of transacting with his pagan idols and modernized it by convincing ourselves that the God we are bargaining with today will be satisfied with just a different kind of offering. And this kind of thinking has serious consequences. On the one hand, we might think that we are good enough. We might think that our actions have earned us favor with God and that we've become entitled to what he might offer us. And a corollary to that is we might look around and see other people who aren't doing as well as we are, or at least in our estimation, and we'll become disdainful of them, thinking that we have earned something and they haven't. On the other hand, we might think that we are not doing good enough according to whatever standard we've established for ourselves. And the consequences of that are despair and depression and anxiety, thinking that we've failed to measure up to merit favor from God. And if you're like me, paradoxically, you may have both of those in different areas of your life. In one area of your life, you may think that you're doing well. Like I, I give consistently to charity. I'm doing well in that regard. But when it comes to being loving and gracious with my spouse, I'm not doing quite so well. And so I'm trying to figure out whether, on the balance, I've done enough to earn favor with God. And yet, that thought, that approach, is cancerous to the Christian life. So what is the antidote for this modern pagan approach? Well, we'll see what the antidote for it is when we consider how Naaman gets more than he bargained for. You see, Naaman came all this way to Elisha's house to bargain with God for a cure for his leprosy. And maybe along the way he thought that, you know, he could add the Israelite God to his pantheon of Syrian gods as someone who could um, provide him benefit in a certain sphere of life. But God knew that Naaman had a more urgent need than a cure for his leprosy. God knew that Naaman needed to know God himself. And so that's what God does. He reveals himself to Naaman and shatters his view of his pagan gods. How do we know that that's what God did? Because if we look in verse 15, Naaman comes up out of the Jordan River, and he doesn't come out and he look at his skin and be like, oh, great, the leprosy's healed, uh, no scars, nice skin tone and complexion. Very nice, very nice. No, what he says in verse 15 is, Behold, I know now that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. See, how does, how does he get from his cured leprosy to no God in all the earth but in Israel. I mean, it's not the healing of his leprosy that brings Naaman to that realization. After all, he came all the way to Israel thinking that the Israelite God was, you know, perfectly capable of curing his leprosy alongside all of his other Syrian gods. Naaman came with expecting that to happen. And he, he did not come expecting to... Uh, forsake his Syrian gods, 
But somewhere between when Naaman went down into the Jordan River and when Naaman came back out, not only did God cure his leprosy, but he revealed himself through Naaman in that occasion. When God revealed his character to Naaman, Naaman could not help but see how fake and artificial all the pagan gods of all the other nations are. He understands that they are nothing more than pitiful, corrupt forgeries of the one true God. See, this is what happens when God reveals himself to you. And it's important that we understand this is not a full revelation. I mean, infinite God cannot be fully understood by finite man. I mean, when Moses, when God reveals himself to Moses, he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock so that Moses can only see the back of God as he passes along because, as God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. But yet an encounter with God A revelation of God necessarily changes your life. How does this change Naaman's life? We see it in the passage. He says that he will worship God only. How does he go from being this polytheistic Syrian pagan to worshiping God only in the space of a couple of minutes? It's only an encounter with God that can change your life like that. He also asks for pardon when assisting the Syrian king in worshiping idols back home because he understands that now this is is false worship. It's part of his obligations as the commander of the army, but he understands that it's false worship. And finally, it's remarkable what Elisha says to him as he leaves. He says, go in peace. I think that peace is more than just, it's not just physical peace. It's not just, uh, you're not here fighting me. It's, it's peace with God. He's established a relationship with God, and his individual life has been transformed. And so uh, Naaman is returning home with his leprosy cured, yes, but having a revelation from the one true God, being included among the people of God, and being an example to us of what it means to change in response to having God reveal himself to you. Naaman came prepared to bargain with God for a cure for his skin condition. Instead, he left with a cure for his spiritual blindness. This grace that God showed to Naaman is characteristic of the grace that God shows to all of us. Do you have a problem or a concern this this morning that you feel you need to bargain with God for? Whether you've been a Christian for decades or are coming to him for the very first time, God offers you grace far beyond whatever problem or concern you've brought to him. He offers you grace even though you can bring nothing to the table to earn it on your own. And he offers you grace that reveals himself to you. If this is the grace that God offers us freely, Why would any of us seek to bargain for something so much less from our modern-day equivalents of Naaman's pagan idols? Please pray with me as we close.